Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. joining us today. I hope everyone is healthy and safe wherever you are in this new normal of COVID-19. Today we're going to take a little bit of a break from talking specifically about COVID-19, but as we get deeper into hurricane season and a lot of other hazards uh, confronting us, we're going to take a deep dive into flooding hazards. Today we have Cynthia DiVincenti from National Flood Services. They're an organization that works closely with FEMA and other partners in administering aspects of the National Flood Insurance Program. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about what that is, how that works, some of the different challenges that that we have with flood insurance and uh, you know getting enough people to sign up for it and how do you evaluate that risk? How do you get these resources into people's hands to, uh, to help reduce the financial burden of recovering from a major flooding event. And with the National Flood Insurance Program, there's been reform on the horizon for quite a while now, and so we'll spend a little bit of time talking about when we might see that happen and what that means in terms of the existing programs and the existing ways of administering them in terms of how those changes would be integrated into it. So with that, thank you all for joining, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Today, we've got a, a great topic and a great guest for you. We're joined by Cynthia DiVincenti, and she's the head of government relations at National Flood Services. Uh, and they're an organization that, in partnership with FEMA, manages and processes as much as 1.8 million flood policies and $1.4 billion uh, worth of premiums through the National Flood Insurance Program every year. Uh, so a big partner for government and uh, uh, good timing here as we are well into flooding season and getting into hurricane season. So Cynthia, thank you so much for, for joining today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, before we get too much into what you do, I know I certainly didn't do you justice in the intro there too. I wonder if you could uh, just say a few more words about how you got to uh, the position that you're in and, uh, and maybe a little bit about what you do at National Flood Services. Uh, sure. Well, I'm probably what would be categorized as a flood insurance nerd. Uh, basically, I have been in the flood insurance industry for, gosh, I guess 31 years now, 30-something years. Um, basically, I used to work for a large P&C company who was a writer of flood insurance and uh, was with that company for 27 years, had an opportunity to move over to um, National Flood Services in 2008 and made that move. And now working there, I kind of head up our government relations activities, which is working um, in, as a liaison with FEMA, but also, you know, keeping us abreast of what's going on legislatively in the flood insurance world so that we're not, you know, caught surprised if something comes out of Congress. We know what's going on and are prepared to respond to it. Uh, but I help, you know, support our write your own clients that we service. 
That's great. And you mentioned PNC, that's property and casualty. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, see, I'm an insurance nerd. I, I'm going to throw out acronyms. Sorry. <laughs> I, I was just showing off that I know what PNC means. That's all. <laughs> so it's all good. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, when we hear national flood services, it sounds like uh, maybe it's a government agency. Is it a public-private partnership? Can you talk a little bit about the structure of kind of what, what is national flood services and what's its relationship with FEMA and the National Flood Insurance Program? Okay. Well, National Flood Services is a, a company. Um, we're headquartered out of Kalispell, Montana, and we provide um, services for roughly 32 of the country's leading insurance carriers, uh, including Allstate, Assurant, Farmers, and many more, um, that write flood insurance through the NFIP and FEMA. And obviously our focus is to help American property owners be protected for flooding by having flood insurance. Um, we support about 87,000 agents uh, across the US and we work diligently to help educate them and property owners about flood risk and the importance of having flood. And you know, over the last few years, um, we've helped probably more than 60,000 families and business owners rebuild their lives um, following some damaging floods, you know, some of the worst storms in history, Harvey, Irma, Sandy, Katrina. Uh, we've been, you know, involved in, you know, claims handling and getting folks back up on their feet. Um, as to our relationship with FEMA, um, we're representing the insurance carrier clients, and as you indicated, about $1.4 billion in uh, annual premiums, about 30% of the total policies enforced in the NFIP. And we previously had administered FEMA's NFIP direct contract. We had that contract for about 14 years, um, which is kind of, if you're not insured by one of the write your own insurance carriers, FEMA does have their own kind of insurance company, I guess you'd call it, which is NFIP direct. So we're very familiar with them. But we're kind of a major stakeholder and we'll work with FEMA through various work groups and directly as needed to support our clients. Um, and I mean, it, it goes way back in 1983, uh, FEMA launched the Write Your Own Flood Program, um, which allowed, you know, private insurance, PNC insurance companies to actually sell and service NFIP flood insurance under their own names, but backed by the federal government. So over the last uh, 37 years or so, it went from less than 2 million policies to over 5 million. So insurance companies are able to bring in kind of their marketing and agent distribution channels to help grow that business and insure more people. So this is a this is really interesting to me sort of where these public private partnerships where the where the rubber really hits the road. Um, obviously the national flood insurance program a big one in the disaster space and the agriculture space with crop insurance and things like that. But um, but so so I understand correctly it sounds like then you you're almost that first step on the other side from the public into the private side, right? You guys are helping to, lead, to, to, to bridge that gap between the, the private sector insurance space and the, the public sector sort of underwriting and um, uh, uh, public service side of things that FEMA does. Right, I mean, we probably, we have the um, private side expertise in flood insurance, but can kind of you know, walk that line in between the government side and the private sector insurance side to deliver those customer service claims, underwriting, and all of that stuff. 
Now you mentioned in the early eighties, the, there were some changes that really opened the door to a lot of the uh, private sector insurance companies becoming involved. Um, I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about that change, kind of why it happened, what it meant and uh, the, the significance of it. Well, I, th I think back in the early eighties, I think, uh, you know, NFIP was not growing as I think the government would have liked. We, you know, continue to have, you know, storm events where people were sustaining damage, but not many people had insurance. And I think NFIP FEMA recognized that they are not necessarily good sales makers. You know, they, they can, they design the product and can support the product, but didn't really know how to engage the, the market and, and grow it. So they reached out to the insurance industry because they obviously have a marketing in place. They have agent and distribution channels in place and created that write your own program so that those insurance companies could use those marketing mechanisms, those distribution channels and help encourage people to get flood insurance. And as I said, you know, it grew from, you know, less than 2 million to over 5 million. And, you know, they want to continue to grow it because even at, even at over 5 million, there's still a lot of property owners that do not have flood insurance and probably should. Right. And this gets into, right, the more people that are insured, the larger the risk pool, the more that areas that aren't flooding can help with the areas that are flooding and vice versa as it shifts around, right? I hope I didn't oversimplify that too. No, but that, that's pretty much spot on. It's the law of large numbers. The more people you can insure, the, the better it is for the, the whole economy. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, a couple of the different kind of weather events with Harvey and, and others. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, what are the different kinds of flooding hazards and, and what kind of drives some of those? Are there some key differences that are worth pointing out? Yeah, I mean, most people, obviously, they think flood and they think, you know, uh, obviously, hurricane, tropical storm, you know, the, the storm surges and heavy rains. But it ranges from from that being, you know, obviously on the extreme side to spring thaws and rains. You know, when that thaw starts to happen, rivers, creeks, uh, you know, they'll start to fill. And we've seen plenty of, you know, riverine flooding as well. But it can even be something as bad as, you know, a heavy downpour in an area that has, uh, you know, congested storm drains. So you have, you know, the, the, the water not able to get away and it ends up flooding, you know, neighborhoods. So it's really covering all of those kind of different types of floods um, can be covered by flood insurance. As long as it meets what FEMA has their definition of flood, which says it's got to be, you know, a normally dry land area and an inundation of two or more acres or two or more properties. So, I mean, it could be somebody's swimming pool overflowing and damaging that person's house and the neighbor's house, and that would be considered a general condition of flooding. Okay, yeah, and it's interesting too, sort of thinking like the different causes, I guess the effect is still the same, right? X amount of water, you know, coming across the property. But I, I know you mentioned you're up in Montana, I would imagine with a lot of the rivers and the thaws and things and the, the spring storms where I'm at down in New York, obviously tropical storms, coastal inundation is a, a bigger threat, but it's at the end of the day, it's all water where you don't want it. We like to say, if it can rain, it can flood. Absolutely. Uh, so along those lines, you know, what are some of the things that you see in terms of, uh, uh, for various business owners, homeowners, what kinds of things are often covered under flood insurance or what, uh, um, is flood insurance designed to cover? And are there some things that maybe you see 
that aren't usually covered or some things that you would really kind of encourage property owners or folks sort of looking at flood insurance to be very conscious of? Uh, yeah, Jeff, I mean, we really, you know, like to focus and help property owners understand the risk of flooding and the financial impact that flooding can cause and how flood insurance can help them protect themselves financially. Flood insurance is designed to provide coverage for damages caused to the building and contents um, against the peril of flood. It's the only peril that's covered because most people think of a homeowner's that covers everything except for what's excluded. Flood's kind of the difference and it only covers damage caused by flooding. But basically it's just trying to, you know, get them to understand the risk. And then, you know, as you said, as with any insurance policy, there are going to be some limitations or exclusions of things. Um, Flood insurance is not designed to provide coverage for finished elements in the basement of a building or contents in a basement. Um, you know, and so if you have a beautiful finished family room down in your basement, the flood policy is going to cover the unfinished elements, but not the finished elements or those contents that are down there. So that's a, a you know, to me is something that is, would be great if we could find a way to cover it. I just, understanding how FEMA would come up with what's a good actuarial rate to cover that exposure. But that's the one we hear about the most is that there's no coverage for basements. And there is coverage, like your mechanicals, machinery and equipment down there would be covered. Unfinished sheetrock would be covered. Um, any electrical wiring, washer, dryer, or food freezer down there, all those things would be covered under the flood policy, just not the finished elements and other contents. And I mean, you know, I think that what we look at is property owners need to consider the three major myths that we typically hear. People think that if my mortgage company doesn't require me to have flood insurance, I have no risk of flooding. Well, that's not true. Sometimes they think it's already covered. It's a covered peril under their homeowners or business owners policy, and that's not correct either in most cases. Or, you know, they live so far from the ocean or another body of water that they don't think that they could ever be flooded. So we really work hard to try to um, override those myths and, and help people understand the flood risk. Um, we did a, a survey of 1,400 uh, U.S. homeowners uh, that we conducted back in April. Only 12% of the 1,400 said they had flood insurance. But 62% said they're prepared for a flood. So I'm not sure how that correlation works. Um, and obviously, we, the one thing we found is COVID-19 is definitely making this situation a little more complicated because 50% of the respondents said that they would be less interested in buying flood coverage um, due to the financial constraints they're feeling by the pandemic. So here we are in the midst of hurricane season and people are dealing with other economic implications and flood insurance is not coming to the front. Yeah, yeah, and I, I can imagine what the various financial pressures as well too, as you mentioned. I'm just making myself a note here to move my Picasso in the 17th century from the <laughs> basement. out of the basement, yes. Jeff, yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'll stick them in my deep freezer. That'll do it. No, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, 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 I'm not encouraging that. Uh, okay. Uh, but with the, uh, but I think you bring up an important point, right? And, and I know some of the trainings with the center that I'm at that we give as well too, right? Talking about risk over the life of a property or risk over, you know, the, the life of a, um, of a loan or something like that. And it's, it can seem very abstract, but it can be so catastrophic in terms of the, the, uh, 
unmitigated um, damage, and especially if you don't have those resources for flooding. And FEMA's actually made it part of their strategy to help to work to close the insurance gap, if I'm correct, right? That is correct. That is their um, part of their moonshot goal is to more than double the number of properties that are insured for flood, as well as quadruple the amount of dollars going towards mitigation um, activities to, you know, help people either elevate or remove property from the flood hazard area. You know, that last part, too, I think is a really important point. We've talked with some insurers as well, too, right? And, and having insurance kind of transfers the financial risk, but that mitigation you're talking about actually prevents the physical risk uh, or reduces the chances of that physical risk. So it makes sense that those investments would go hand in hand with each other. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as, as we've seen over the years, you know, disasters more generally, right, they're, they're getting more and more expensive. Um, there's some debate as to why this is, right? Are we seeing more or are we just building more expensive stuff and claiming more expensive stuff? But it's probably really some combination of all of these different factors. Um, and I know that the, the National Flood Insurance Program has sometimes kind of come under some scrutiny. Um, is it subsidizing building in prone areas and things like that? Um, so I'm curious kind of what, what your thoughts are on the role of the National Flood Insurance Program in terms of mitigating um, the cost of disasters and, and uh what factors you see contributing to this increase in disaster costs? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not a climatologist by any means, but I mean, obviously climate change certainly seems to be making storms stronger and more frequent than we've seen. Um, obviously there's more of them resulting in more damage. And I think it's really understanding the, the value of homes and, and the property that's damaged. I mean, one inch of water in kind of a standard house can cause up to $25,000 in damage. And that's just, you know, flooring, baseboards, um, some amount of sheetrock that or drywall that would have to be replaced, insulation. So we're not even talking about major damage to a building. It's just, you know, from an inch of water. So I think a lot of it has to do with the cost of housing materials. Um, and, you know, truly NFIP, I think, mitigates some of this by having people insured because they're actually paying a premium for that coverage. It's, you know, the fact that so many people aren't insured and that's creating kind of an economic situation where, you know, disaster assistance isn't always available, you know, after a flood. And even when it is, it's typically in the form of a disaster loan that would have to be repaid, you know, along with any mortgage debt you're carrying. So, you know, as you said, flood insurance can help mitigate kind of the economic side of it by providing that coverage against flooding and help those people, you know, maybe recover a little more quickly. Um, but, you know, people are going to kind of um, build or live where they want to live. And there are, you know, there are some things that can be done to reduce damage, you know, uh, obviously build outside of designated special flood hazard areas, or if it's within, build to a higher standard. And, you know, FEMA obviously encourages that because if you build to a higher standard, you're paying a lower premium because you've kind of raised your building up so it's, you know, less likely to be flooded or it, the flooding would be, you know, of a smaller, I guess, amount of damage. Um, but as I said, people are going to live where they want to live. Um, but truly, if they're going to live somewhere that, you know, flooding is a potential, they should have the flood insurance. And, and I mean, for, 
I'm sorry, I was just going to add in, you know, I think you bring up an important point. I just want to hit on that. Um, the uh, through uh, premiums that you can steer people towards uh, mitigation steps and things like that. Um, if I understood you correctly, that through reduced premiums, you can create these financial incentives for folks if they are going to build in riskier areas to make those investments. In Absolutely. Yep. So, uh, you know, as we're talking about the National Flood Insurance Program, and I, I think it's also an important point to, um, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but a point that I've made, I'll make is that, you know, the, the National Flood Insurance Program is just one part of a broader ecosystem of preparedness, right? It's where people are choosing to build. It's what mitigation steps are being put in place. Um, I, I, I know sometimes it's sort of called out as if it's the only thing in town when actually it's part of many, many other things going on. Um, but, but with all that, you know, I know we've seen at least for a couple cycles now, the National Flood Insurance Program is due for reauthorization, but, but it's been um, extended, right, for the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, on your end, uh, to what extent you can see in your crystal ball, but what, what is the kind of status of the National Flood Insurance Program? Do you think that it'll be significantly revamped in the next authorization cycle, or uh, are there any things that folks should be on the lookout for? Yeah, as you indicated, December last year, Congress did extend NFIP authority through end of September this year. So we are, you know, looking at an expiration coming up, you know, pretty quickly here, right in the midst of hurricane season. So timing is awesome. Um, and sadly, we have been lurching from short-term authority extension to short-term authority extension since 2017. And with 15 extensions to date, we've had three lapses where Congress actually didn't pass the um, extension in time. Uh, they did do it retroactively, but I mean, that, is, that instability you know, kind of creates disruption in the market. Agents can't write new business, home closings can't go through because they can't place the insurance coverage needed. Um, so, it, you know, to me, long-term reauthorization is kind of important to this program for to create that market stability. Um, and, you know, I know that Congress, you know, wants to do some reforms. I don't think we're going to see reforms this year. Uh, Congress obviously is pretty focused on some other things that are going on right now. So I would anticipate come September, we'll see another extension. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting you mentioned as well to the uh, um, sort of the downstream effects, you know, I'm thinking as well too, right, for most individuals, they're, they're, greatest piece of wealth is their home and their property. Uh, and so sort of it, there's this connection between the flood insurance policy and the hazards and, and uh, individuals well-being that can get very, uh, I guess, complicated is maybe the word I'm looking yeah, for. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're right. You're probably an individual's, you know, biggest asset is their home that they own. And, you know, being able to provide the right protection is, is important. And having a program that could or couldn't be extended, you know, kind of puts you in a limbo that, yeah, can complicate things, especially in the middle of a hurricane season. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I remember seeing at the National Hurricane Conference then Deputy Administrator um, Dan Kanuski was sort of breaking down the average payout from flood insurance versus the average payout from individual assistance. And uh, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was, you know, uh, one was a few thousand for the individual assistance and the other was well over a hundred thousand um, um, through the insurance payout. It's just the levels that would be available and the the 
types of assistance that would be made available and the speed in which those claims would be processed were just much more efficient and effective, all part of the rollout of the new strategic plan at the time that FEMA had of closing the insurance gap, among other things. Absolutely uh, correct. So, uh, so you know, when I, I guess it's been a while since Congress has done a, a reauthorization and made changes to the National Flood Insurance Program, but let's say they come back in September or whenever it gets authorized down the road from there, and they make a number of reforms to it. How, how does that get integrated into your work? Are you actually writing policies for individuals? Or are you sort of shepherding that to the retail outlets? Um, well, it's a, you know, it, just just so you know, is the, the House Financial Services Committee did draft legislation that was passed out of committee. It's just not going, going anywhere at this point. So, but when um, NFIP reform legislation is enacted, we look to work with FEMA and our insurance carrier clients to begin that process of implementing those changes. And I mean, some changes are relatively easy. Um, they, last time around, they made a change that said, uh, we had this kind of a quirky thing that you could have uh, two to four family, single family and two to four family homes were considered one type of risk and could get X amount of coverage. Uh, five family and higher could only get a, a certain more amount. And so they changed a rule that said, okay, now that if it's five families or more, we're going to consider them other residential and other residential coverage can get a half a million in coverage, where before they could only get 250000 So that was a fairly easy change to make. Other changes um, require a little bit more effort, and some of them even require FEMA to go through the rulemaking process, which is can be fairly lengthy. Um, there are things that, you know, having to do with affordability and creating uh, ways to make payment uh, plans as an option. But the way the um, regulatory rules are written, that requires rulemaking and FEMA has had, a, I guess, a bear of a time trying to get to that. Okay, so, so uh, if I understand correctly, if they're simply changing something like, say, the amount of coverage or, or square footage that can be covered or, or a number that fits neatly within the existing process, you can just go in and change the number, not to oversimplify, but I guess that's what I'm doing. But that, that's, yeah, I mean, it truly is that. I mean, obviously, I'm not the IT people. They probably say it's a lot more complicated than that. But yes, it's really saying, okay, before you could have a max amount of coverage as this, now we can have a maximum amount of that. Right. But then larger changes that maybe break up the divisions that are already there or create new approaches or things like that, that requires going through a, a separate process. You have the legislation saying, this is what's authorized, but then you need an executive uh, rulemaking process. To actually implement, yes. <laughs> oh, okay, so there can be, it sounds like there can be a bit of a lag before those changes then, say they reauthorize with something requiring a rule change. It has to go through the rule change process. Do you, do you know offhand, and this may not be a fair question given probably different rules take different amounts of time, but what, what would a garden variety rule change process look like? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact timing and stuff. I know, you know, in my dealing with FEMA on something, they have indicated some of these can take anywhere from a year to five years, depending on what exactly is involved. So that's, that's hard for us because when the legislation comes out, part of what I do is I look at it and break it down and look at, okay, this is going to require, here's, here's what it means to us and how we do business. And then we have to wait to see what FEMA's plan is to implement it. And, you know, some of those things that I see as heavy lifts, 
may not happen for two to three years. Right. Yeah. And there's a, a and just for folks listening too, there's a, a separate process that's probably even less understood than the legislative process in, in terms of the, the rulemaking, but it is very defined within the federal government when things have to be, you know, public comment periods, things like that. Uh, and that's a very specific process that has to be followed with certain sign-offs and things like that, depending on the kind of rule. So absolutely. Yeah. I think it was the, um, on the health preparedness side, the CMS role center for, uh, uh Medicaid and Medicare, um, had, integrated a rule of emergency preparedness for healthcare facilities. I want to say it was close to a decade from when it was originally formulated. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, you understand the, the lengthy process then. <laughs> oh, only in the abstract. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, I can paint the picture um, to carry on the theme like a Picasso, but the, yeah. uh, or maybe a Monet, a real fuzzy one, as long as you don't want to focus in on anything. <laughs> I can paint it, but rely on uh, uh, knowledgeable experts like yourself who, who really understand the details. And then, and then the translation of that ultimately to the retail, right, where someone Absolutely. You know, once those changes are kind of determined, we focus a lot on getting that information out to the agents and policyholders so that they understand what's going on and what's coming their way as far as changes. So we, we do a lot of um, educational stuff and awareness stuff. Um, you know, obviously you can, you know, find more about us if you go to our website or follow us on Twitter or Facebook and stuff. But we really focus a lot on making sure people understand flood risk, mm -hmm. flood protection, and how to get a flood policy. So along those lines, I mean, this has been really helpful to kind of understand the process, understand what's going on at the back end. Um, any, anything that we're, we're missing here in our conversation or any kind of thoughts or advice you would give that we haven't uh, talked about yet or that you'd want to reemphasize to folks? Yeah, I just, you know, I think that everybody needs to, you know, recognize that, you know, flood risk is out there. You do not have to live right, you know, seaside or on a lake or river. Um, and just, you know, understand the risk and know what you can do to be prepared and protect your property. That's great. Uh, so uh, you mentioned the website, social media, but so, so where can folks go to follow your work, learn more about, uh, learn more about all of this and uh, get more information? Sure. You can visit our website, which is nationalfloodservices.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at National Flood or on Facebook at National Flood Services. Great, and we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on all that and would love to uh, kind of keep the conversation going and especially as we see more of uh, the potential directions that the National Flood Insurance Program, the NFIP goes. Uh, it, it does seem like that, that reform is in the air, but it's a matter of when and when Congress is able to be in a position to really dive in and, and, and legislate that. But, uh, uh, it seems like at some point in the next few years, we might see some changes and might uh, we need to reconnect and uh, talk through this if you're able. That would be great, Jeff. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. I think this was a really, really fascinating conversation. I always love kind of getting under the hood on <laughs> some of these uh, legislative and regulatory processes, but it helps just shine a light on so much that influences uh, everything downstream, no pun intended. It's been great. Thanks.
All right, thanks again to Cynthia DiVincenti for joining us today and helping make us all a little bit smarter about flood insurance, the National Flood Insurance Program, and all of the various dynamics we need to be thinking of when we're talking about creating a, a portfolio of resources to offset both the financial risk and the physical risk of flooding hazards. If you like what you're hearing, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, we're on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik, or send us an email, disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, everyone, for joining. I hope everyone's staying safe out there, and whatever you're doing, stay safe out there.